This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The New Cold War, The United States, Russia, and China, From Kosovo to Ukraine, by Jilber Ashkar. How did we get here? As leading international relations scholar, Jilber Ashkar details in this book, the rivalries of the Cold War didn't disappear with the collapse of the Soviet Union. They simply mutated into new forms. Frighteningly, the new Cold War has become increasingly hot in the European theater, ratcheting up tensions in ways we have yet to reckon with. As Noam Chomsky puts it, learned and incisive, ranging easily from broad geopolitical analysis to the details of policy formation, this masterful study of the new Cold War of the past 30 years by the scholar who first identified and studied it is an indispensable guide to the current global disorder and its ominous portent. The New Cold War by Jilber Ashkar, out now from Haymarket Books, and available at haymarketbooks.org, where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25, respectively. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. In the decades since publishing our first book, the memoir Raising Expectations and Raising Hell, My Decade Fighting for the Labor Movement, veteran organizer Jane McAlevey has become a singular figure in the labor movement. She has written four books on labor, all focused on tactics and strategies to organize mass numbers of new workers into unions that wage mass strikes to fight employers in order to revive organized labor's flagging fortunes. She regularly comments on labor in national and international outlets, and she's continued to work on a wide range of union fights throughout the United States and the world both individual campaigns and in her Organizing for Power online trainings, a course taken by thousands of workers across the world. Her latest book, co-authored with Abby Lawler, is called Rules to Win By, Power and Participation in Union Negotiations. In it, McAlevey and Lawler focus on mass participation union contract negotiations, with an eye toward engaging mass numbers of workers in those negotiations to force bosses to give unions what they want. The book focuses on several campaign case studies, including several that McAlevey herself worked on. Today's episode is guest-hosted by Micah Utrecht and was conducted in March at the People's Forum in New York City. Special thanks to the People's Forum for hosting and recording the conversation. Before I turn this over to Micah, I want to say that I do hope you've checked out the first episode of The Dig Presents, our new audio documentary series. It's really excellent, and there are precious few places for audio producers to do this sort of creative, politically engaged storytelling. And I'm really grateful for everyone who supports us at Patreon.com for making The Dig possible and for making it possible for us to do The Dig Presents because, wow, these episodes are really good, but boy, are they also pricey given all the labor that goes into them. Over time, we need to make enough money to make The Dig Presents financially sustainable. The good news is we have a little bit of a financial cushion right now, but it is a small cushion. So I need to get us about a quarter of the way to financial sustainability in order to order a second season of The Dig Presents. That means we need to raise an additional $1,000 a month on Patreon. 
If you love The Dig and are excited about The Dig Presents, please help get us to that point by contributing now. Plus, as always, we have thank you gifts to send you in exchange for your contribution. A contribution of any size at all gets you our weekly newsletter by email. If you haven't yet checked out that newsletter, you can read them all for free alongside our vast archive at thedigradio.com. Check it out and then contribute now so you can get that newsletter by email. If you contribute $10 or more a month, we will send you a dig mug, a dig tote bag, or a book or books. If you depend on the dig, know that we depend on you to support our mission. Click the link in the show notes now. Contribute what feels right. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. I really do sincerely appreciate it. Okay, here's Jane McAlevey, an organizer, author, and scholar. She's a senior policy fellow at the University of California at Berkeley's Labor Center, part of the Institute for Labor and Employment Relations, and the author of Raising Expectations and Raising Hell, No Shortcuts, A Collective Bargain, and most recently with Abby Lawler, Rules to Win By, which is out now from Oxford University Press. If you want to listen to more McAlevey on The Dig, check out my 2019 interview with her. It was really good. I'll post a link in the show notes. Jane McAlevey, welcome to The Dig. Great to be here. So before we get into your new book and any of your work, can we just start at the beginning with you? How did Jane McAlevey come to be? I mean, you write in a bunch of your books about, you know, a history of coming from a political family and being a student organizer at the State University of New York, Buffalo, and working for a while in the environmental movement and politics. But like, you eventually ended up in the labor movement. But I have on a more existential level, I'm curious, how did Jane McAlevey, the labor organizer, the the dynamic organizer, globe trotting the planet, spreading uh, the methods that we're going to be talking about in a minute? How did you come to be uh, such a person? I was completely unprepared for that question. And any other one he's going to ask that might be the hardest. I mean, I do think it's relevant to say that I am the daughter of a World War II fighter pilot just for starters, because I think uh, the high-risk gene came a little bit from uh, mild man, rest in peace. Um, He wound up being the wingman to the ace in the German theater and made it home alive. So just as 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 a point I reflect a lot on, like being the daughter of a successful fighter pilot who fought fascists, I think is not an accident. There was no concept of like something being too risky in my childhood, whether it was my brothers throwing me off of giant rocks and saying land or anything else. And then I think he became a politician. And by the time I was born, and my father was in politics, so I was born into a very political household. He was, I don't know how to do it. Someone will fact check me later. But Bernie Sanders like in the sense that he didn't have a he didn't have a clear ideology except justice. And he took a lot of risk in, in public office in the 1960s and 70s. And I think this had a huge influence on me. He actually knitted together racial justice, zoning laws, and fought for the first Earth Day and flew the Earth Day flag over the public office building. So that was 1970. So that That was in New York. Yeah. What was the position that he held? Yeah. Um, Mayor, then supervisor, then chair of the supervisors, then... Um, and they created what, what city was it? in Rock, well, Rockland County, um, northern suburbs, which were different than they are now. But 
And he, you know, created a zoning policy that went to the Supreme Court in the sense that it got rejected by the Supreme Court. But everyone in zoning law cases still studies it because it's essentially the precursor to smart growth. He's actually credited with the first zoning laws that built in public housing that got me beat up in elementary school all the time for bringing black people out of the city into the country. So the zoning laws was called the um, controlled growth is what it was called. And they taxed developers and the developers went to war against us. Um, and my father actually figured out because he came out of a strong building trades family, how to bring the building trades unions together in coalition to build the first public housing um, in the New York suburbs for which there was extraordinary controversy. So actually, in some ways, like that lineage and a dead mother. So who died when I was very young, which meant I was my father's campaign attache um, on posters, on bumper stickers the baby, the proverbial baby he was kissing a lot of the times. So, and then I had a, you know, crazy pack of siblings who had to raise me because he was never home. I mean, I was either his campaign attache or I didn't see him basically for most of my recollection. Um, and I was raised by a pack of great wolves. So I think that is sort of the roots of like knowing that methods mattered, um, understanding that you couldn't pass public policy if you couldn't win the campaign, knowing that you couldn't pass public policy even if you narrowly won the campaign. You had to win the campaign, your election campaign, big. Um, and then you had to keep power, and then you had to divide and conquer your opposition, which he was doing constantly. Um, so, like, lessons of methods, charting, turnout, divide and conquer your opposition, do a power analysis, not live with a sense of risk, um, which he carried from, I think, the German theater into politics. And there were a range of progressive causes that you could have gone into that you did go into besides the labor movement, but obviously you've now dedicated the, the bulk of your working life to the labor movement. So why labor in particular? Oh my God, because there is no other way. Just saying it. Um, I mean, the truth is uh, all of the work we do matters in the progressive movement, but we live in something called capitalism. And it, it took me 10 years of being in the environmental justice movement, the student movement, primarily peace movement, to realize in a country with a, with a lack of real democracy, as I, would, I think we would all agree in this room, like a challenged concept of democracy in America, that the one thing that the employer class will respond to is when all the workers walk off the job and create a crisis. That actually, at the end of the day, the most effective way to challenge unfettered corporate power and the global rich elite is when workers do what they just did all week long in Los Angeles and just won an incredibly big victory by having 60,000 people in the streets. So while I think all the issues matter in the broader social movement, I think the foundation of power that is required for the rest of our issue-driven movements to succeed is a strong labor movement. And I might say Obviously, even in the civil rights movement, now this is going to get to methods, but something called sort of structure-based power, uh, because obviously the black church um, is a different kind of institution that I would say in some ways is not separate from the labor movement, obviously, but the ability to measure your power and know whether or not you're ready to have the kind of fight that you need to have. Yeah, it's just, that's why after being in the environmental justice movement, living in the South at the Highlander Center, which is where I was sort of doing a lot of the anti-toxics work early on, learning a lot about the labor movement and the civil rights movement by being in the South in a famous institution that people in this room might know about or big listeners might know about, but a lot of other people don't. 
the Highlander Center um, in Tennessee was the official labor education center of the Congress of Industrial Organizations in the 1930s and 40s, and then was better known or is better known for being sort of the education center of the U.S. civil rights movement a couple of decades later. And when I had the pleasure of first moving there to work there, I was set up in the library because there was no office space for me um, in my mid-20s, age-wise. And I started to go into the archives in a place that even I thought was mostly a place that had a big history in the U.S. civil rights movement. Martin Luther King was there. You know, there were people, they were all there sort of doing work. And I went into the archives, and it was the first time I saw organizing manuals from the CIO and incredible black and white photos and realized oh my God, it's always been the labor movement and the civil rights movement. These have always been inseparable movements. So, Well, I was going to ask that uh, you joined the labor movement at a time where, for example, on the American left and the global left, it wasn't really like the, the cool, the hip thing. It wasn't like where people thought the action was. The labor movement is seen as sort of moribund. It's not a place where there's a lot of dynamism that was happening, particularly when you when you started. I think the story's a little different now, uh, now that we see a little dynamism in the labor movement. But when you started in the labor movement, that wasn't the case. But so you're saying that that's, that's how you get, you, you looked at, uh, you know, both the, arguably the two most important social movements in the history of the United States, the, the labor movement in its heyday and the civil rights movement. And you realize that that's, that's where the action is. Yeah. And I was not, uh, for obvious reasons, going to be a leader um, in the black church movement. But uh, but I hope to have an impact. Um, and I would say, actually, in all the organizing work I do, and including in Rules to Win By, um, in the chapter on Paznepin from Philadelphia, um, I've never stopped connecting the two. Um, and as someone who is not Baptist, not actually someone who practices faith, I've spent a hell of a lot of time inside the organized black church with the rank and file members of unions in every single fight because there's hardly one. It wasn't true in Vegas. Vegas is an exception for a lot of reasons, or Nevada. But in every other campaign I've ever had the pleasure of running, helping members identify an additional source of power in their lives, all additional sources of power is fundamental, and the black church has been key to many of those struggles in my lifetime in every campaign. So it's still sort of inseparable. So you've written four books now, and uh, throughout those four books, you you make your organizing strategies and philosophy very clear. But in the spirit of sort of crisp, quick communication, I wonder if I I can take a stab at what Macaulayism is as a whole, and then maybe you can correct me and if I'm if I'm wrong. So the thread that runs throughout the four books is that workers themselves have the power to organize and force significant concessions. Uh, not only from their bosses, but from society as a whole. Uh, but because our current political environment is one that's so hostile to collective action by workers, that workers can basically only win by one, taking militant action in overwhelming numbers together, and two, simultaneously using every bit of leverage they possess, which means using the ties that they possess uh, outside the workplace in their communities as well as in the workplace themselves. And the only way that they can do either of those things is through very rigorous internal processes of uh, building towards serious action, what you refer to in all of your books as uh, structure tests, as meeting structure tests and scaling up uh, those tests until you're at the level where you can pull off a, a, a mass strike or, or even, even more. Um, and if, if they can do that, they can not only beat their bosses, but transform all of society. Am I missing anything that you would add to your definition of what Macaulayism is? It has to be fun. But no, in all seriousness, that, uh, and, and I'm serious about fun. Uh, 
uh, isn't that funny? I'm serious about fun. But um, the audience that's listening to this podcast can't see your shoes right now, but everybody who's in the room knows <laughs> that you take that very seriously. Um, I uh, I think that was well done, uh, Micah. Um, yeah, I think that that's right. I mean, we can build on it, but I think the one piece that I would add just explicitly, it's implicit, I think, but to be explicit is that in the conduct of the methods that I was taught um, in terms of building worksite power um, and how, how I have then, I think, helped amend and extrapolate them a little bit um, to, the, to the sort of whole worker work. But the methods I was taught about building worksite power and then additionally thinking about how do workers come to see themselves as powerful actors inside of their communities and then you knit that power together. We should just say that it, it's radical political education, that the point of it all is to help um, everyday people connect the dots in their own lives about things that enable them to have the confidence, right? Because confidence is like one of the most important things the working class needs uh, in order to act. And so all of those structure, I think a lot of what's missing is all of those methods that those of us who continue to win, not always, but often, and win big, not always, but a lot. Um, all of those methods are part of helping everyday workers come to have more self-confidence in their capacity to win um, on the way to a big strike, on the way to believing that they can elect a great mayor or a great someone. So sort of the explicitness of an approach that knits together, like we are here to help people connect the dots. And if we're not doing radical political education, um, as we're doing the organizing work, um, we're doing something wrong. If we're not helping people connect the dots about all the points of power and then helping them see how they can connect them and stitch them together, then we're not doing something right. And I had the blessing of amazing mentors. So, yeah. Uh, the thread that goes through all of your work and, and very present in the new book, Rules to Win By, is that nothing can be accomplished without workers themselves taking action together. And you're somebody who comes into these campaigns as a, as a staffer, as an organizer from, from outside the workplace. But the whole point of your methods is to actually generate worker engagement. Uh, and, and that you say repeatedly in all your books that nothing can be won if the workers themselves are not taking uh, action. And not just that the workers themselves are taking action, but a majority and not just a majority, but a supermajority of workers uh, taking action together. And the, the number that always comes up in your, in your books and when, whenever you open your mouth is uh, 90%. Uh, the, the goal is for 90% of workers to, uh, to, get, to be on board to take this kind of action together, which seems to me to indicate a kind of radical democratic belief on your part. Uh, because, you know, we're at a time of extreme polarization in the United States and increasingly around the world. And to insist that it's possible to win 90% of people over to anything is kind of uh, an incredible claim. And, but that's what you say is required in, in, in uh, implementing the methods that you lay out in the book. And you're crazy enough to believe that you can get 90% of people to be participating in something like a strike. And if we're to believe what you've, what you've written uh, about the case studies that you've participated and others have participated in who have used your methods, that 90% is actually an achievable number. So can you talk about that kind of uh, that belief and, and, and how you make that 90% possible? Um, actually, by laying it out to the workers from day one in every campaign, right? Like uh, a sense of sort of radical transparency in the conversation 
is is a key part of the work. I think that there is this maybe return to this this crazy, I think absurd often discussion in the United States in the left about the role of a full-time organizer, what some people call the professional organizer, kind of versus rank-and-file leaders or something. It's literally the most absurd discussion that we engage in, in my opinion. The, the way that workers come to win is by having organizers, and that could be full-time or not, could be in the workplace or not, but skilled people, right? So if you're a rank-and-file leader like Alex Caputo-Pearl, who we're going to hear from later, a teacher union leader, who spent 22 years explicitly organizing while he was teaching. It could be a rank-and-file um, leader like Alex, who has 22 years of organizing under his belt, or someone like me, who has 22 or 20, whatever it is, number of years, of, you know, old, getting old here. The point is, organizing is a craft, and power building is a craft. And when it comes to organizing, you have to bring me back to that point if I lose it, but I want to come back to it. It's like, there's this idea that anyone can just stand up and do it. And, on the, and you can. I mean, we can. I mean, I have the most, I have an incredible belief in the capacity of every single person to act. But it's like you wouldn't hire someone who's never held a hammer to build your house the first time. So building the kind of power required to get to 90% or north of 95% or to 100% unity among tens of thousands of people isn't something that you're going to hand to someone who's never tried to do it. So it's a concurrent, it's, a re, it's, a, it's being real about what's required to build that kind of power. But I think I say in every book, and I say almost every day more than anything, if you don't actually believe that everyday people can learn how to do this and learn how to do it quickly, you're in the wrong movement. You know what I mean? Because actually everyone can organize. It's just we can't assume that they can do it without someone helping them understand the basic steps and the basic methods. That's what a, a craft by definition um, is something that you get better at and better at and better at every time you do it. And so a lot of rank and file leaders um, who have never been quote unquote full-time um, organizers the way I have are extraordinary leaders because they've been in it for a while, because they know the work, because they've been through a strike or two or 10. And they're just as good as or not better than anybody, right? But it's, so you have to start a conversation with workers, everything has to be totally honest. Like, I've never kidded them. Hey, I'm here for a little while, um, and guess what? My job is to get you as good at this as I possibly can, as fast as I possibly can, because I'm not going to be around, and this is not my boss. So what I'm going to do is teach you every single thing I've ever learned, and I'm going to do that with a curriculum in my head, and I'm going to teach you step-by-step step in a way that's going to make sense to you, like good teachers do in the classroom but I'm going to do it with thousands of workers and struggle. And there's a series of steps that we move through to help people learn and build their confidence. And that sort of like mental curriculum of the organizer, which ebbs and flows, just like a good teacher teaching history in a classroom, starts, has to start with being open, honest, transparent. Um, here's my job. Here's your job. For people who don't know it in the United States, in the private sector, we are not even allowed in the facility. In fact, several people in this room with me have been arrested and thrown out, and our job is to never be arrested. Okay, if you're a smart organizer, you never get arrested, uh, but we've been threatened many times. I'm veering off into one direction of the crowd. But there's a lot, you know, young organizers think, oh, cool, get arrested. Actually, it's not cool. It doesn't impress the workers at all. It looks really bad. Don't get arrested. But we're not even allowed to touch our toes 
on the property in a campaign. And just to put a point on this, it got to the point in Nevada years ago where there were photos, every security guard in every hospital had pictures of me. And if I got anywhere near the facility, like five security guards would come out. I was trying to bring my boyfriend in for a surgery one day and was prevented from him getting on time to a surgery. You know what I mean? So it's like, we can't even go in the building or near it under the law, which means our job is to be the best educators we can be and to be super honest. So when I sit down with workers, and they have a list of things that they want to win, first thing I say to them is, that's super exciting. Wow, you and your coworkers are so deserving of that. And here's what it's going to take. It's going to take you getting, building 90% unity across this entire workplace and knowing and letting the boss know that you're at at least 90% unity and that you're ready to take the kind of risk it's going to take for you to make the kind of victories on the demands that you're making and never being anything but brutally honest about that from day one, and then when people's eyeballs pop out, like, how do we do that? Being ready to start the curriculum. Like, you're starting the lesson right there. And it starts with being clear to people about, you want to win this? Your expectation is high? I'm down with it. Let's do it. We can do that. Actually, you can do that. And here's what you're going to have to do to win staffing standards or a raise or a pension on a 401k or whatever it is. You actually can do it. And here's what you're going to have to do to do it. You were getting in this direction uh, with this, the, the, the last answer, but uh, it seems also like the 90% kind of figure and the, and the methods that are about building these super majorities um, comes not only from believing that you can get 90% of a workplace on board, but also the incredibly hostile climate that workers operate under in the United States, which, which is uh, something like an authoritarian regime when people punch in on the job every day. Uh, in the b- very beginning of this book, the first page of uh, Rules to Win By, you tell uh, an anecdote about working on a campaign where you get in an elevator uh, and are physically confronted uh, by uh, some pretty nasty dudes and get physically assaulted by them, actually, and, and uh, sexually assaulted uh, by some of them uh, with the intention of trying to draw a reaction from you that would uh, hurt the campaign. And so this is the kind of environment, this, these are the kinds of people that uh, these, these petty little authoritarians that we call employers in the United States are employing. You know, they not only like restrict your ability to have any kind of democratic say on the job, they hire thugs to confront uh, union organizers in elevators and assault them. I mean, this is the climate that we're, uh, that we're living in. And so the 90% seems like a number that is necessary to overcome that kind of uh, essentially, for uh, for for to carry out democracy in an authoritarian regime, you have to ha- have a supermajority of people on board ready to confront the authoritarians. Absolutely. I mean, the important thing about that opening story in the book is that union buster, infamously known as Brent Yesen, that's his name, had been doing what he did to me in the elevator to uh, dozens of nurses. He had actually been intimidating and, and minorly sexually intimidating, kind of viciously. Um, this is nurses, by the way. Mo- most of my life is hospital workers and registered nurses, both. I like it when it's the whole hospital because um, I think workers have more power that way. But most of our campaigns would begin with registered nurses and then the nurses can be the natural leaders and then we organize the rest of the hospital. So that's, that's, that's the campaign years you're referring to, which was the four years I spent in Nevada, uh, which uh, is a hell state with incredible workers in it. And that union buster 
you know, we kept hearing stories. He was like walking nurse leaders. He'd wait at shift change. This is, this is really what goes on in the United States. He'd wait at the time clock for them at shift change. And then he'd walk right next to them to their cars in a dark parking lot. And then he'd lean against their car and put his arm on the door to try to force the nurse to have a conversation with him. So this was actually going on, and we'd been hearing about it in the campaign. And so the episode I tell about being locked in an elevator with him, all of which was litigated. So, you know, that like we did go, we did have a trial. Not that we started. They started the trial. Like they then waged a complaint in the National Relations System, board system. They remarkably, but not remarkably at all. And this is true at Amazon and Starbucks and everywhere else. There's not that that stuff is not new. Let me just say that what's going on today is just not new. Um, we had Pinkertons and guns in the old days. And, you know, it's, there's a through line of violence and intense repression, psychological and otherwise against workers in campaigns that matter. Um, and by the way, the for-profit hospital sector in Nevada um, mattered because it was the single highest source of income for every single for-profit hospital chain in America. I just want to say what the power analysis here, which took us a little while to figure out why did they care so much? Because in Nevada and in the casinos in Las Vegas in particular, where 44 million people fly every year and land to gamble, every single person is out of network on their insurance plan. And so for real, like this, this is what power structure analysis does to you, by the way. Like we couldn't figure out why did it matter so much? So it, it mattered so much. It was their own little mini Amazon or something if you were the for-profit hospital industry and they were all there. Um, and so that kind of terror campaign led to us winning. The workers won um, in that particular moment in that election. And then the employer, uh, within the seven required days under labor law, filed charges against us saying that Jane McLevy and a few other people had personally intimidated every worker to vote um, yes for the union after being assaulted in an elevator by them, right? So, um, and then we had to actually go on and win and litigate it. Um, and that story itself was quite hilarious, like the litigation of that story when I finally stood up and talked about his sexual violence in the elevator um, and the judge just sort of, you know, anyway. Yeah, it's being very, very clear with people that if you want to win something really big, um, as you say, under an authoritarian-like regime, which is sadly the state of Florida, the state of, I mean, we just start going on and on, whether it's, if you're a woman in the United States at this point, um, where do they just ban the pill even from being mailed to, Wyoming? You know, it's like we are getting to a point, and for black people and many others, it's always been a point of functioning like an authoritarian regime um, in our civil society, it really has been like that in the workplace for a long time. So for people to think that they can just use social media and tweet um, or hold meetings and have 40 people show up who are the same 40 people every time at every meeting, that that's going to get us to the kind of power required to challenge what is going on in this country and in this world is really uh, not just magical thinking, it's bad thinking. Um, so having really honest, upfront conversations about what it takes to build the kind of power required to figure out how to reset the power structure. We start every campaign that way, and we are the more honest we are with the workers in a campaign, the better it is. Um, and everyone um, needs to be brutally honest and then have the ability to teach them how to win, right? It's those two things. It's like, It'd be a real bummer if all you said was, well, you got to get to 90%. See you later. Good luck. 
you know, that wouldn't work either, right? So it's being clear about the power structure analysis, bringing people into understanding the power structure analysis, and being ready to be good teachers who can actually educate everyday people what it's going to take to build that power, because they actually can. Like, people can do it. So Rules to Win By is mostly about union negotiations. Obviously, the subtitles, Power and Participation in Union Negotiations. And it's specifically about an approach of yours uh, called open negotiations. And I didn't really understand until I read this book that uh, the point of open negotiations for you is not just to throw open the doors to all union members uh, in a given unit to join in. And maybe that you'll be more powerful because the boss sees that there's a bunch of there's more workers than they expected there. That's part of it, obviously. But really, that the point of such open negotiations is to see contract negotiations as an opportunity to involve as many workers as possible and to maximize all of the points of leverage that each of those workers bring to the table uh, and involve them in multiple parts of the negotiations process. And then in doing so, you don't just win a stronger contract, you're building or maybe rebuilding in the case of a moribund union, uh, that kind of supermajority worker power that we were just talking about, um, which can be then uh, taken and used elsewhere within the union and uh, beyond the union. So can you talk a little bit about that, uh, that strategy of, of open negotiations and why they're so important to everything that you uh, argue for in this new book? Yeah. I mean, for me, it's, it's an extension of the arguments from the book, No Shortcuts, which, of course, is an extension, whatever. They're all extensions of some argument. But in this context, this book is a focus on how do you put workers I mean, I believe you have to put workers at the center of everything. That's where we were a couple of questions ago. So this book focuses on how do we put workers at the center of the negotiations process, period. And if I get to it, there'll be another book um, about how do you put workers at the center of power structure analysis. The more workers understand and the more they bring their actual intelligence to the table, right, because they come with extraordinary intelligence, the better off everyone um, is going to be. So... And I should say it isn't uh, you use the word members. Um, and since I began my I was doing some negotiations in Connecticut at 1199 New England when I was a young um, tyke. But I'd really had like one full round negotiations before I got to Nevada. And it was in a pretty with, with a pretty mild employer relative to most of the employers I would go on to continue to go on to meet for the rest of my life. But it was in Nevada, which was a right to work state. I just want to say it's not just members, it's all the workers covered by the collective bargaining agreement. Because in fact, what it became was radical political education. So there was a big debate about it in Nevada. Like in a couple of places where we had a moribund unit, your words, where we had a dead union functionally with, you know, 20 workers out of a thousand who were, who were like paying, well, more were paying dues. But, you know, hardly anyone even paying dues to the union that was a shocking thing for me to go from the comfort zone of the Northeast at a time when everyone um, paid dues into the union that they were a part of um, in non-right-to-work states to like the Wild West of the Southwest, where it's a voluntary organization. And we were in the first two campaigns, we're meeting with workers who basically hated their union, like most of them hated the union, wouldn't join it, wouldn't sign a membership card, thought it was the, you know, a ridiculous organization, not corrupt, just stupid. and to help them overcome their skepticism and to help them really understand that a union was just them and their coworkers 
collectivizing their power against their employer, I was often battling with the longtime people there to say, we're actually going to let anybody come into the room who's represented by the collective bargaining agreement. And that pivot was instrumental, I think, to us actually building a 90% union in a voluntary pay-as-you-go kind of state, right? Um, Sounds like you're also describing it as a kind of like recruitment opportunity for those who are not currently engaged in the union or who are even anti-union. There's plenty of stories of that in the book, right? Is that like you bring them into this process and you show them what this this thing is that you are building, what a union looks like, and that, that, they're, that it's something that they would want to be a part of because they see how dynamic it is and how it's a force for them to change their life on the job. Yeah, and it, you know, there's this rhetoric in the labor movement, like everyone just says it, like, you are the union. I mean, if you go to a union meeting, even a bad union, honestly, or a do-nothing union, I mean, there's a lot of them. Um, but they will say, you know, the U in union stands for you. I mean, literally, it's everywhere. And then they haven't made that real in their entire lives, right? So it's like, how do you make the U in union real to people? Um, you involve them and put them at the center of the most important decisions in their own organization. And generally for workers, the most important thing that their union that they decided to form or join or be part of um, is what's going to be in their contract. What are their wages? What are the terms and conditions? How do they get out of living in authoritarian dictatorship called the employment sector of the United States? And so, yeah, you know, to, 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 it's not telling workers you are the union. It's actually enabling them to be their own union. It's enabling them. And so when you open up the negotiations process, and you don't just invite all the workers covered by the contract, but you demand their presence. And I don't mean every session. I should be clear. Like we set a goal of trying to get every single worker once. Like electing a big committee is part of it. So there's an election of a very large committee, which is also key to the method. There is a sitting committee and it's very large, much larger than most unions in the United States engage in. So there's a standing committee that's representative every kind of worker, every kind of shift. They bring incredible intelligence to the meeting. There is no way that any trade union leader can tell me that not having a ton of workers from every shift and every kind of work um, in the room doesn't help negotiations because they're fact-checking the employer constantly. Like when the boss says, well, we were fully staffed for that week that you were suggesting that we weren't fully staffed. All we have to do is like pause, take a caucus, and there's going to be like 30 people in the room who will say, you're talking about the posted staffing grid without call-outs and without you replacing people who were sick that day. And actually, our real numbers were quite different. That right? So you can literally just, workers can fact-check it. They bring their intelligence about everything's working. And it's a, there's no way an employer can go up against the intelligence of all the workers in their own facility. Compared to me, I'm just facilitating a conversation at that point, right? I don't know what the hell is going on in their workplace. They do. So it's that. That's the standing committee. But then the goal of getting each worker, literally, to walk in that room, we would do shift change pushes, just come in for an hour to the night shift in the morning to have a giant showing. Or people who were going on to the night shift, just, you know, for late at the table, come in early. Because once they saw it once for most workers, like literally in my life experience, if a worker one time walked into the negotiations room and that's they suddenly understood in a way they never did in their entire life. Now I understand what the union is. It's me and my coworkers going up against the boss. Now, 
in this book and in basically the last three books, you're you're focusing a lot on stories of this method succeeding, that showing that it actually can work and explaining how it works. Uh, but I was also rereading your first book uh, ahead of this event, uh, which is the uh, it, it breaks a little bit from the other books. You you like to win as you're constantly talking about. Uh, but then the first book involves certain parts of the labor movement that uh, you think are, are were making very wrong-headed strategic decisions, particularly SEIU uh, at the time, about a, a decade ago when you wrote the book, or over a decade ago when you wrote the book. Uh, and you it, about negotiations in particular, you talk in that book about the, the approach to negotiations that was being taken by certain parts of SEIU, so the, the dominant national leadership at the time, that took the exact opposite approach to these kinds of negotiations. Every, everything was about getting people in the door to the union uh, to begin with, uh, fly in a bunch of uh, talented organizers uh, to get people on board for this union, uh, get, get them fired up about it, uh, and then immediately leave town, and then the contract is completely out of those workers' hands. Turn it over to the union, let the professionals handle it, and they negotiated uh, what were uh, frequently quite shitty contracts. In, in uh, No Shortcuts, you have a, a chapter on uh, an SEIU local in the state of Washington where that's perhaps the most grotesque version of this, where the contract, the workers clearly have nothing to do with the negotiations of the contracts and what is in the contracts is actually actively bad in many, uh, in many cases. And so this is, uh, do, do you see this approach? I mean, th that approach was dominant in, in some of the more self-considered dynamic parts of the labor movement like SEIU a decade, a decade and a half ago. Do you see that approach changing in the labor movement towards something more like what you advocate for? Or uh, is this still the dominant way that most unions are handling their contract negotiations? Sadly, I think that most unions still are, most unions still are handling um, their negotiations um, with very small committees signing what's called gag rules, um, gag orders, and not being transparent at all about the negotiations. Now, the point in the books uh, is to tell more stories and show the success to as many people as possible. But I think most, I'm going to go back to that moment <laughs> that you're describing, which is like early 2000s in SEIU, though, again, I, I think it applies across, you know, I mean, at least SEIU was trying, you know what I mean? I, in, in the first book and in their shortcuts, I sort of academically had to define who are these sets of unions I'm talking about, and I called them the, the, uh, the eight unions that were still trying, as opposed to the f 59 or whatever who aren't even trying. But anyway, it was so egregious back then that actually, uh, famously, um, someone named Tom Woodruff would actually come in. He had the position of organizing director. Um, if, if the organizing team had used what I call big wall charts, what I was taught to use, big wall charts, which are handwritten ways that, that you teach workers themselves. That's the point of big wall charts, by the way, is teaching workers themselves what it means to build a powerful structure, how to get to a majority and a supermajority unit by unit or school by school or whatever it is. Uh, yes, there's a database um, in the way I was taught, of course. But if we're teachers, then we actually have to let the workers come to understand how to get to that 90% because they're charting it themselves um, on a chart. So in a hard campaign, um, a lot of us were doing that. And then Tom Woodruff, the organizing director, would actually walk in. I was told this story by someone who's now at Ma who was at the Mass Nurse Association. It blew my mind. Tom Woodruff would walk in and actually take the wall charts from the campaign um, and rip them up and throw them in the garbage and then remove the staff. 
So it was called lowering expectations, um, if not smashing and trashing workers' expectations. Now, there was a theory, just to be fair for a minute, to something that's that outrageous. Their theory, and a lot of people still believe it, is that, um, <laughs> remarkably to me, people still believe it, um, that there's no way for workers to win until a lot more workers are in unions. It's called union density, right? So there, there, there is a working theory there. I just, I just think it's the most outrageous theory I've ever um, heard or experienced. Um, because if workers don't experience actually material gain, um, dignity and respect for real, like in their contracts, you're going to reproduce dead unions. And there's no way we're going to build the power required to do all the things that we need to do, like save the planet and racial injustice, stop cops from laying on people to smother them. I mean, the, the stuff that is going on um, every day in this country is so off the grid. So the idea that trade unions are choosing methods that don't work every day when there's a choice, a strategic choice every day to choose a way to win is why I write books. To like call people out and say, let's try to win today. And in Los Angeles, we just saw a bunch of people win. And in the state of Michigan, where they overturned right to work laws yesterday, meaning Friday, the 24th of March in a historic move, there are really, Canada, Germany, whatever, uh, you know, there are people consistently winning. And then there's the majority of trade union officials who choose every day, remarkably to me, to lose. When you put it that way, I mean, why would you choose to be a loser? I don't understand. <laughs> Uh, they're lazy. It's easy. They're risk averse. I mean, it's a fairly long list, um, but it's frankly unacceptable. And we don't, I feel like 25 years ago when I was first, um, or 20 more, I don't know, in joining, working in the labor movement full time versus the environmental justice movement, you know, it didn't occur to me that it wasn't as clear to me that these were really choices people were making, but they really are. And that's the point. And the point of each book um, is to say, let's focus on that which we can control. And that which we can control is what's our strategy? What's our power analysis? Um, and I, I think 25 years ago, we would have this sort of, okay, well, it's a bummer. You know, they're not choosing it again, you know, trying to win. Uh, wouldn't it be great if they tried again to win? And then you sort of kept waiting, like, is this the crisis that's going to make them choose to win? You know, is it the invasion of another country? Um, is, it, is it, you know, a financial crisis that bankrupted the working class for the 90th time in 2008? Is this the crisis? Is it an external start? event right. that's going to spur people? That's right. Is this the moment when they're going to, you know, decide? Sadly, we missed that opportunity when they bankrupted everyone's mortgage uh, and deflated the price of homes for every working class person. And still somehow the labor movement doesn't think housing organizing matters. It's, it's a mystery to me. Um, but at any rate, it has been part of every campaign um, that I've had the pleasure of being involved in. And now it's, we literally have a time clock on us. I mean, either they either, if you're framing the hard choice, something organizers have to do a lot of, 
Like, I feel like looking at every labor leader and saying, like, so you either don't believe in science. Is it that you don't believe in science? Or do you want to die? Because that's actually the choice right now. It's not just, do you want to imperil, continue imperiling the working class by choosing to lose, by using strategies that you know are not going to work? Or do you not believe in science? I mean, I think we should ask every labor leader that. If I was like Michael Moore with a microphone, I'd be running around doing that. It's like, do you not believe in science? Or, right, because if you, if you believe that the planet's burning down and anyone who didn't experience eight atmospheric rivers in a row like I just did in California, you know, or the floods in Kentucky or fill in the blank, we are at a different moment. And so I hope that everyday workers, and what's beautiful about this moment, Micah, and everybody to me, is that workers are really challenging the position holders in their unions right now. And workers are forming new unions. And a lot of workers are clear that there's been a set of unions choosing to lose for a long time and trying to actually figure out how to, how to take this instrument, a union, and actually turn it into the force for good that we know it can be. And this book shows it. And all the books show it. And history shows it. That's what's exciting to me. Um, and again, part of the point of the books and the training courses um, is to actually enable tens of thousands of people to come to understand that there is a choice they can make to win. Um, and it usually starts with challenging the position holders in their unions to turn their organization into the kind of organization that can do what just happened in Los Angeles, which was 30%, they, won, they demanded a 30% raise, and on the 24th of March, they just won a 30% raise for the lowest paid workers in the Los Angeles Unified School District. Um, yeah, so, you know, there's a lot of big winning to be done, but the organization has to be uh, democratic, and not just democratic, it's such a throwaway word. It has to be a high participation organization in order to win. And that's what opening up the negotiations process builds is a high participation union. Um, high participation negotiations means you believe in the everyday intelligence of the workers. It means that as a union official, you're not going to be allowed to sell them out cheap for a cheap contract because they're all going to be in the room holding you accountable. Um, and it's going to build a different kind of labor movement. And it, I think we show it in every case study. Hi, this is Olufemi Otaiwo, and you're listening to The Dig. You can support the podcast at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Set Fear on Fire, the feminist call that set the Americas ablaze, by Las Tesis, and translated by Camila Valle. After the feminist art collective, Las Tesis created their performance A Rapist in Your Path in their native Chile. It went viral across the globe, becoming the anthem of the grassroots feminist movements in South America and around the world. This is their manifesto, an angry, unrepentant tour de force that moves through rage, femicide, abortion, homophobia, feminist art, and the oppression of the state to argue for a feminist world based on collective struggle and visionary political art. Set Fear on Fire by Las Tesis and translated by Camila Valle. Out now from Verso Books. 
So one of the case studies in the book is of the Pennsylvania Association of Staff Nurses and Allied Professionals, PASNAP, uh, which to me is maybe the most exciting chapter in the book to see that case study of how you did that with PASNAP. Can you just talk very briefly about that as a case study and uh, how you uh, went about winning all that you won with PASNAP? I mean, it starts with it. There was a foundation of a good union there. Um, and I show in the chapter that contrary to common rhetoric, it's a lot of trade union officials who fear strikes. But I show that in the decade or so leading up to when those campaigns happened, that union had been constantly on strike. So I just want to I want to underline that. Right. Like a, a union that strikes often by definition, at the 90% or above level, by, by definition, is a high participation union. And so when workers were voting in 2016 and 2017, because it was seven different hospitals worth of mostly nurses who were voting to form unions in Philadelphia, um, they were doing it because, in fact, they had seen a gigantic 2010 strike at Temple University Hospital where the workers... Um, went out on an open-ended 28-day strike um, and took on management. And in the end, kind of like Los Angeles yesterday, meaning again, the 24th of March, kind of like won pretty much everything they went out on strike for. It took them 28 days um, in Philadelphia. So that's the background. It was already a high-functioning union, and that matters. When I was brought in, I had been working with PASNAP. I was doing my PhD at that point. Um, I, not surprisingly to people, you know, doing a PhD is not something lucrative in this country. So I needed to work during the PhD process, much less than most students, by the way, I was lucky to have a fellowship and all that stuff, but I needed to work. And so I'd carved out only one or two contracts at a time. That's what I could handle and to do the, to get out of the PhD in five years and do no shortcuts. Um, and so I'd been working on and off doing tra- organizer training at PASNAP during my PhD process, starting in 2012. And so I was already working with that whole team. Um, And in 2016, when they began to win, it was clear to the leadership they didn't even have enough people to negotiate the contracts. So I began to get phone calls from the head of the union saying, something's going on in Philadelphia. Um, There's a whole lot of heat down here. Um, We keep winning elections and we we can't even stop to negotiate. Can you come down and start coordinating the first contract campaigns? Fast forward. I keep saying no, by the way, just got a nice fellowship at Harvard. I was like, this is the year I'm going to just hang out and write a book. Uh, that, that didn't last very long. So um, next thing I know, and what they did do was actually invite me to be the keynote speaker at convention. And this is really true. They were organizing. The whole leadership was organizing. And I didn't know until I got there. So I kept saying no to go down there. And I go to their convention, which is in April, and I get surrounded by 35 worker leaders from Einstein Medical Center. Um, who come up to me and say, the employer filed charges against our election and the employer filed charges to get the election thrown out. This is the biggest hospital in the whole campaign in Philadelphia. And the employer filed charges against the National Labor Relations Board. Same thing going on at Amazon, right? Actually charged the Labor Relations Board for suggesting they colluded um, in the campaign to help the workers win. Absurd, but noting it because people act like the first one ever happened is at Amazon. It's not. It's regular. Again, these things happen. They just happen over time. They seem new, but they're not. And they literally said, uh, we're asking you to come down and help um, us get 
over these legal charges and win. So fast forward, you know, I'm in Philadelphia very quickly because that worked. Didn't work getting phone calls um, from the heads of the union, but it did work when I met these incredible nurses. Let me get down there, you know, and the truth is what was tricky about the election is that the employer at that point, so there is no union, right, officially, because the employer is contesting the election completely. And what's complex, and this matters, is the boss is putting out a message that says a majority of nurses never voted for the union, which was actually technically true. Um, I'm doing it off my head now. I haven't looked for a while, but I believe it was 434 yes votes, 170-something no, and then I have that wrong. And then, and then people who didn't vote. And if you added it all up, and by the way, I can barely add anyway. It's terrible at math. But if you added it all up, it was like technically true that a majority had not affirmatively voted for the union versus sat out or voted no. But by American democracy, you know, it was a slamming victory, right? It was like a 93% yes vote or whatever. Um, we would never have any presidents if yes. this is the standard oh for God. electing presidents. Governor, president. I mean, if, you, if anyone had to, yeah. So, I mean, it was, an, it was more than a simple majority. It was a very good majority in the victory. But technically, the boss message, so good. They had 18 union investors in there. It was a $1.1 million campaign, it turns out. So the boss was putting out this constant message. Well, a majority of nurses in our hospital never actually said they wanted a union. I was just like, that was the day one thing. And I like met the workers and I said, so to overcome that employer message, guess what you're going you're gonna to have to do? You're going to have to do this thing called a majority petition, which is a petition that only you and your coworkers sign. No one else is. It's not a petition like go online and, you know, say you want to save the planet or a puppy or something, whatever we do in this country. It's a petition that is only for the workers in the workplace that is affected to sign. And that petition is going to say we demand the employer drop the legal charges, recognize the union and get to the negotiations table. Pretty sure basically that's it word for word. These petitions are always very short. That's the other thing that's different about them. Unlike the five paragraphs in the average public petition that you read, it's like, oh, my God, people. Anyway, but that's because this is a structure test. And so we said to a bunch of nurses who were excited but beleaguered because the boss message every day, literally every day in emails to them was, you're never going to have a union. We don't care if you voted for it. You're never going to have a union. Doesn't matter that you voted for it. You're not going to have one, right? Daily messaging from the union busters, very sophisticated. The biggest expression of it was, Everywhere in the hospital, a majority of you never voted for the union. So I was like, all right, well, let's prove the boss wrong. Let's have a majority petition with signatures from all of the nurses saying, um, we actually demand you drop the legal charges and we want to get to negotiations and we voted to form a union. Uh, and that's the part about being honest with workers about what it's going to take to win. And people are like, what is this thing? You know, this majority structure. OK, fine. So. Off and running we were. Um, and by the way, until the workers did that, and it was not easy because there were whole anti-union departments at that point. The union busters do not go away, right? They win. Um, and if you win the election, like the description in Nevada, then they sue you, you know, if, and, and if they win uh, illegitimately, whatever, anyway, you know, it's ridiculous in this country. So the union busters don't go away. They hadn't left the hospital. So this was, a, this was an ongoing, daily, intense organizing campaign to try and get to that 90% supermajority across that hospital, 
even though they had already voted to form the union. It was constant organizing. And it was not until, and it took a couple of months, it was not until they hit barely a supermajority, 65%, um, of them signing that petition because we couldn't move a couple of the key anti-union units yet. Um, and that really matters how we did that too. And the majority petition is part of it, right? So when a majority, we had enough to overcome the CEO's bullshit line, right? So 65% of them sign a supermajority, majority, good majority, let's say, petition saying it's a lie. Um, we immediately have the workers themselves begin to, the workers themselves blow it up into a gigantic poster. It's all their hand signatures. It's called showing the boss, um, the majority, not telling them, right? There's a way you show the boss a majority. We immediately had delegations of nurses in their scrubs delivering it to every member of the board of trustees, the mayor, the city council, and everyone you could possibly imagine, the media, um, to say the boss is lying, to show, more importantly, the boss is lying. Because the proof is in every signature on the paper. And that's the first pivot in the campaign. Meanwhile, the employers losing the charge, like they keep losing the case, but they keep filing appeals. And we know that that's the whole point. The reason why Paznet brought me there was because, like at Amazon or at Starbucks or fill in the blank, the employer is going to continue contesting and using lawfare and the legal process to stop workers from ever getting to the contract, unless the workers can figure out how to create a crisis for that employer that brings them to their knees, which is exactly what the workers did in Philadelphia. In, in reading this part of the book, you get to the point that you're describing and like, just as a narrative, you're like, oh, finally, here's the, there's all this stuff that comes before it. And then it's like, ah, it's all resolved. The good guys win in the end. And then you're like, wait a minute. No, this was all just so that they could get to the negotiating table in the first place so that they could start negotiating a contract because this was, you know, the, the, the boss didn't want to even get to that point. So you had to do all of this just to get to the point where you could then do the open negotiation strategy. And then there's a whole other part of the narrative there. Oh, by the way, but that, no, that first structure test, that, that first majority petition didn't even get us to the table, right? It was then a strike vote that, and then it was threatening to disrupt the entire um, Hillary Clinton nomination at the Democratic National Convention. So there were several more steps before the power structure of Philadelphia would be forced by the threat of a strike by a mostly female workforce that was the exact demographic that the Clinton campaign believed that they needed to win the state of Pennsylvania, which went like this. We need black people to overvote in Philadelphia and then white women in the suburbs. And guess who the thousand nurses in the hospital were? Black nurses in the city and white nurses from the Philadelphia suburbs. There were literally a thousand, and we kept telling the power structure, there's a thousand people who are a microcosm of your ridiculous strategy to win a swing state called Pennsylvania. And by the way, we were telling them you're going to lose because not one of them wants to talk about Hillary Clinton, by the way. And if workers don't want to talk about something, you're in trouble. So we had to threaten, we had to, we had to risk, we had to threaten to violate, oh my God, this goes to labor strategy, the choosing to lose people. I'm going to go back to choosing to lose for a minute. The, the Philadelphia labor movement had signed a year earlier what's called a labor peace accord that would bound all unions from not taking any action when the Democratic National Convention was happening in Philadelphia. Can I describe choosing to lose? Okay. So, um, but PASNAP was an independent union. Thus, the independent union was not bound by said agreement. Strong argument for union independence. Strong argument for union independence, however, acting in a lot of good solidarity with others. And so when I pointed this small fact out 
to several people in the power structure, the heart attacks began because we're like, we're going to put registered nurses in uniform from your demographic in front of the nominating convention for Hillary Clinton or your choice. You're going to fix the effing problem and get the employer to drop those legal charges. And we're going to negotiate an expedited negotiations agreement, which is ultimately what we did um, on the back of that threat with people screaming at the top of their lungs at us for holding the nominating convention hostage. And we were like, anytime, man, anytime we can hold the Democratic National Committee hostage, I'm for it. Um, And it worked because we understood the power structure analysis, which was the local host committee was not going to tolerate picket lines. And, you know, we were explicitly saying to them, if you're if as long as you're cool, that when the entire international media is here, we're going to have a bunch of black and white women um, saying that you failed them. That's okay with us. That's your choice. Otherwise, fix the problem with the CEO in the hospital. And that problem got fixed. So there's there's much more to that story. People will have to get it in the book, Rules to Win By. Uh, but there is a very funny moment during those negotiations where you go into the negotiating room and one of the boss side negotiators has a copy of your first book, Raising Expectations and Raising Hell. And he's got it all marked up. There's uh, tabs in it to show that he's definitely read the thing. And his, his basic vibe is like, oh, McAlevey, I'm on to you. You know, I read your book. You spell it all out here in the book. What you're going to do to me during these negotiations, you idiot. Why did you write it all down? And he's trying to intimidate you and show that he knows what's coming. But then it ends up not really mattering that he knows what's coming because he can't fight uh, a supermajority participation. You know, all the things that you that the workers throw at them because there's no there's no way he can win. Even though he knows what's coming, he can't beat you all the negotiations table because it's a it's such an overwhelming show of force by the workers there that is the point you know what i mean that is the point when we do our work right they actually it doesn't matter if they know what we're doing they first of all they already know what we're doing like any union buster knows what we're doing and we know what they're doing and that's the thing that the workers don't know who don't have enough experience that's part of the point of what we have to teach really quickly um but it was a very funny moment um because i actually forgot i had a book out i often forget I mean, I have to tell you, when people ask me to sign a book sometimes, I'm like, why am I, why are you asking me to sign that book? Because I actually forget I write them. And I'm not kidding, even though I'm sitting next to one. So there was this moment when he walked into negotiations. It was the very first opening session when we finally forced, when the nurses forced that employer into the room. And he, it was the very opening session. And he had, he, he had it as the first thing you would see. And so there's like 150 workers in the room. And I'm having this, like, you know, you teach workers in these settings to keep poker face. So I'm keeping poker face. Poker face. It was much easier in Nevada. Every worker got poker face. But in Philadelphia, it was a little harder. But anyway, poker face, you know, show no expression. Um, Whether we're losing or winning, we don't ever want to let the employer know what we're doing. That's one of the 20 elements uh, of of good, high-powered, high-participation negotiations. And I, like, literally had forgotten that there was, like, an entire book, yeah, with every single thing we were going to do. And he walks in and he like looks around and he literally says out loud, well, it's just like the book says. There's a lot of people in here. And then he said, I bet you're going to show an opening presentation next that only the workers give, right? And I go, yes, could you please sit down? You know, and at the first caucus, it led to the best set of laughter, among the best set of laughter um, that I've ever had with the negotiating committee. Because when the boss walked out, we can call what's called a caucus, called a caucus after the worker presentation. Of course, the nurses did an extraordinary job making this very thorough 
presentation about their demands, one PowerPoint click at a time, just like he knew was going to happen. They leave the room and like the workers just first worker leader got up and said, well, what an effing idiot. He read the book and we're going to kill him anyway. And like that was the joke the whole way through negotiations. So the point is yours, which is it doesn't matter if they know. If the workers get organized and can create a crisis, they can win. I want to zoom out for a second and talk about uh, your relationship to uh, ideology. Because I'm, I'm, I'm always, you know, I'm interested in the, uh, the, the tactics that you're describing in the book, the sort of like practical methods for how to win, but also the sort of bigger picture questions. On the one hand, you don't seem to have a lot of interest in or patience for ideology. Um, you, are, you are principally interested in winning. You, I, I told you about a project I was working on the other day about uh, old socialists who were in the labor movement, uh, many of whom <laughs> lost quite a bit. And you were kind of like, why, why would you waste your time? with All those people, they didn't win very much. So why would you bother with that? Uh, which is a fair question. So you, you're, you're interested principally in, in winning. On the other hand, um, especially in No Shortcuts, you go quite a bit into the history of the American labor movement. And you seem to have a very fundamental respect for the organizing that was done by the Communist Party and various kinds of socialists during the heyday of the CIO in the 1930s, because there's a very clear scholarly consensus that these radicals were the most dedicated organizers in, in that period. You couldn't have built the early CIO if you didn't have uh, radicals playing very key roles in the in such organizing. So yeah, you seem less interested in people who can sort of cook up uh, impressive theories and more interested in people who can uh, carry out impressive wins. Is this an accurate description? Yes. Is this a trial? <laughs> yes. I want to answer yes to the first question. I'm much more interested um, in people who are whatever it is, um, who are teaching people how to win in the immediate um, and it's not that I don't think ideology doesn't matter. It's that um, I think spending a lot of time, I mean, actually, I think, it, I, think, I think what matters is what are the principles on which we're doing the work? Can we point to them showing success? And so part of my cynicism about not spending a lot of time on these questions for my whole lifetime um, is rooted in several things. One, there's not a lot of great world historic examples to show for in the name of communism or socialism. And there's definitely not good ones to show from capitalism. I mean, let's just be super clear. But so one is, if, if, if as an organizer day to day, what I'm doing is raising people's expectations that they themselves can build the power to change their workplace and win. Having a long discussion about the debates of what did or didn't work in the Soviet Union it's not actually going to help the campaign at all. What is going to help workers come to understand capitalism as a problem is A, not me telling them that. It's actually them learning it. It's actually them experiencing the crisis that capitalism is creating in their lives. And so I, I'm not sure about this, but resentful would be too strong. Like I feel like I do ideology in every campaign and every day of the week. And I do that ideology by helping workers come to the realization that the system in the United States that they're living under is an absolute abject failure. That condemning people to poverty who make the profits every day um, is an absolute failed model. And so there must be something better out there. And I'm pretty sure that that's socialism, right? I mean, if you push me on it, I, you know, the principles of socialism are good. 
but I've met too many people who call themselves socialists or the biggest assholes who couldn't win a thing. Two words, couldn't win and are really just ineffective at what they do generally, that I'm not going to spend a lot of time hanging out with them. Um, it's not helpful to me and it's not helpful to the American working class. So when we get close enough to like being able to contest for state power, I'm going to switch gears a lot and focus on that. But at this point, we're trying to teach workers how to control their unions so that they can go on and actually win and challenge like mayors and state power and small estate power. And in the methods that we're using is ideology. Transparent, big, open negotiations is ideology. Being honest with workers about what it's going to take to win, to me, is a form um, of ideology. Showing them um, and helping them experience building small d collective worker majorities that can govern their workplace is like, what is better than teaching workers how to actually govern the hardest place to govern, which is their work life, gaining control of their schedules and everything else that a good union contract will result in. So it's not that I don't think it matters. It's that like from age 18 or 17 on when I was a student organizer and some schmuck from the Spartacus League shoved a four-point font newsletter in my hand, um, I just thought, who are these losers? Seriously. I didn't even know what the Spartacus League was. I'm like, are you people from Greece or Rome? Or like, who are you? And then at subsequent conferences that I would be brought to of like explicitly left people, and I'd be bombed by like 90 other people handing me 40 different versions of a badly put together newsletter that was in four point font yelling at me. I just thought, I'm just not spending my time with these people. Now, that doesn't count, Jacobin. And that's why I'm here. And I'm, re- I'm totally serious. Well, and it doesn't count, as I said, the doesn't count. Communist Party and the auto factories Absolutely. and the steel and all that. Absolutely. And, and by the way, not only does it not count them, oh my God, of course they get credit. I mean, I do give the communists and socialists credit in their shortcuts. There's an entire chapter on it, right? Um, and, I, and what I do is show what they were doing. And part of the point of what they were doing is no different than what I'm doing. And I tried to argue against some of those same very contemporary and effective leftists that whether, whether the experienced, skilled organizer is positioned inside the workplace in the rank and file or outside, like I have been, doesn't matter. It's what are we teaching the workers? How are they learning it? And are they learning self-confidence um, and the ability to win? Like, like, it doesn't matter whether we're inside the rank and file or outside the front gates. It's what are we doing? Do we believe that workers actually have the capacity to win? And so I absolutely believe uh, that, a, I mean, then we'd have to get into a big discussion as to communism or socialism, but I absolutely um, believe capitalism is an absolutely failed model. There's no question about it. I just don't spend a lot of time, like, what's, what's got to be perfect about the new system? Because we're so far from it. And honestly, when we get closer, I'm ready to throw down and figure out what it is. Well, this uh, leads to the uh, point that you make in the conclusion of your previous book, A Collective Bargain, and you make several other times in your work, that while you're mostly writing about strategy and tactics for organizing unions and negotiations, you, you make pains to say that the strategy and tactics that you're laying out are not just about the labor movement and, in fact, should be used as part of a, a, a broader transformative project in all of society that can include politics, that can include other kinds of social movements. So can you talk briefly uh, about the, the potential for the use of these kinds of 
the the strategies that you lay out in these books as as going beyond the labor movement? Definitely. And I, I actually do want to just say I love the dig and Jacobin and there's a whole group of socialists who I now I, I actually think it is important. I mean, I'm because I was just razzing there for a little bit, uh, which I think was also deserved to a lot of them. Yeah, guilty as charged, sure. But um, um, I do think the dig is one of the more intelligent things I get to listen to. So when I'm riding my bike or working out. But anyway, so um, what I, I think that the methods apply across the board and the concept, the handful of concepts, which are that there are what we call organic or natural leaders that exist um, all through society, that the organizer doesn't make leaders, leaders actually exist. Um, our job is to help coworkers or tenants um, if they're building a tenant union or students if they're trying to build Fridays for the Future to save the planet um, in their K-12 through education system. Our job is to help um, people identify um, that there are natural leaders among the working class all over the place um, and that we're going to be more effective um, if we help lead with people who are already natural leaders who will then need to be skilled up and taught the art of war, essentially, which is sort of what these methods are. And that doesn't just exist in the workplace. And in my life experience, believing in something called whole worker organizing, that's just the word I gave it, but it's what the communists and the socialists were doing. It was easier in the 30s and 40s. The, the, the extension of the, of the work to bring the workers' own community into the fight, people will say to me oftentimes, by the way, only in academia, not workers, but in academic debates or debates with socialists. They'll be like, yeah, you can't really do that anymore, though, because people don't go to church or they don't have any more faith or people are dispersed or they don't live together. Like it isn't like factories like the 1930s and 40s where you had huge populations of immigrants living next to each other in a factory town. And so, of course, the whole community came out to support them. Sorry, do I sound cynical? I've heard this so many times. And then it's like whole worker organizing is a method to show that it takes a little bit more work these days. Like we have to adjust that idea for the times. Like, correct. We don't, some places we do, by the way, meatpacking factory or, you know, there's exceptions to this. But it is true. It's a different, guess what? It is different conditions in 2023 than it was in 1933. So how do you adjust for them? Whether it's across decades and centuries or across workplace, non-workplace into building a tenant union or building a more effective climate justice movement, the methods of identifying natural leaders and then helping skill those people up to lead whatever it is, whatever the fight they're having is, to lead that struggle, that that's going to be more effective and efficient ultimately um, than just spending all of our time talking to the most committed people who come back to every meeting every day. We're just not going to win by talking to ourselves. And we are going to win when we train people across movements and across sectors to realize that there's a set of methods and, you, you know, they're not fixed. They're called methods and not models for a reason. Methods are adjustable and we adjust them to different times and conditions and settings. But the methods matter. And a core one is stop talking to just yourselves and start spending every single day talking to people who you're not talking to because that's the way we're going to build the kind of power required um, to stop fascism. Great. Well, uh, we have a couple of minutes here at the end for questions. Maybe we can take three or four of them. 
Um, I wanted to ask briefly about the... And if folks uh, could introduce themselves oh. just for the room, that'd be helpful. My name is Ege. I'm an organizer and a lecturer at Columbia University. And I wanted to ask about your experience with the University of California strike, where I believe we have a um, union leadership who has read your books very closely, believe in the principles that you outlined, but who were... You know, let that and who continue to be part of the administration caucus of the UAW, which were about the defeat, hopefully today, later today. And they 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 swear by your principles and yet they've let the workers down. So how can this happen? You you were a part of it. What what has gone wrong there? I'm really curious to hear. Um, I actually wasn't involved at all. That's the problem. One of them. Sorry. That's obnoxious. That's one of the problems. Um, I actually wasn't involved. Um, and many people um, read my books and proclaim that they're doing something in the name of McAlevey. And I'm like, you, by the way, so did the union busting lawyer in 2016 in negotiations, right? He read the damn book and obviously couldn't figure it out either. So that's sad for me. You know, it'd be a very long discussion. Um, I think if you go back and look at the webinar I did with Nelson Lichtenstein mid-strike, where I was essentially assailing informally, carefully, because we were on strike, a leadership, I use the word position holder. Semantics really matter to me. So as you might know, if you hang out with me, I use the term position holders um, a lot um, in unions because to be a leader means you're actually leading. So let me just back up and say, I think that the position holders who were involved um, in, in the UC effort failed at the most basic level to do a good power structure analysis um, of what the fight was going to require, did not, were not engaging people at all in the ways that I articulate and, and practice, period. And that's unfortunate. And hopefully, uh, you know, Sean Fain wins the election and we have a new United Auto Workers uh, any minute now um, that can challenge that. Uh, but I was explicit both in the Nation Magazine article I wrote um, and in the webinar I did with Nelson Lichtenstein that there was a lot of things that needed to be happening, starting with building one big union. I mean, the idea that the United Auto Workers at the University of California has four different locals in one system is absurd, just for starters. Um, secondly, that they didn't conduct the campaign. See, you could say you're having open bargaining, but if you are actually having um, off the records with the employer that no one sees, then you're not really actually having open bargaining. So, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's like a lot that we could talk about about that, and I don't have time for it now. Um, hopefully I'll write about it at some point. But uh, there, there was an intervention I tried to make in September. I had been quite occupied with some other things in the year leading up to that, and I work remotely and I'm here. So by the time I tried to intervene, which was early September, and suggested a series of steps, only a handful of which the committees chose. Like I insisted on doing an intervention with those uh, position holders across the four units and said, why are there four separate newsletters going out about this campaign? Why are there four separate negotiating committees? Why isn't this all the workers sitting down together in one big struggle? Um, and that led to some immediate course adjustments, but not, not really. Like they went to one collective newsletter. Okay, well. Then they continue to have four different units. And this does matter because we're talking about negotiations, right? They continue to have four different separate negotiating tables for four different units of workers um, and then chose to settle one out um, before the others. I mean, pretty much a lot of things were wrong um, in California. 
in that University of California strike, which, yes, I was a member of and I was on the picket lines just barely in time I got to California for that. So um, that could be a subject for a very good discussion a different day. Hi, my name is Matt Leitchinger. I'm a UPS driver and member of Teamsters Local 804. Um, I have a question about sort of just could you estimate sort of the percentage of unions uh, that do open bargaining and uh, for unions that don't do open bargaining, like sort of sketch out some sort of ideas of how to make that a reality, you know, in unions that don't do it? Um, super excited about this year and this moment um, in the Teamsters Union. Super excited. I think most people know, but not everyone. So I'll just say it again. But the United Parcel Services UPS contract um, is up for negotiation uh, and their contract expires in August of this year. Um, and everybody listening to this podcast and everybody in the United States who can do it should be supporting, um, which means following the lead of and taking the lead from the workers in the UPS contract fight. Um, so, but Matt, to your point, we haven't done a quantitative study. I'd actually like to do it next to actually know, because I walk around saying 95% of unions in the United States function under a closed system with a small committee and gag rules. No one's challenged me yet. I mean, I'm just saying, I think it's a fair statement that the vast majority, like the overwhelming majority of contract negotiations in the United States happen with a lawyer and a small committee and gag rules. Even in some good unions, it happens that way. And again, I, you know, that's, it's a power and control issue to some degree. Um, there is no other reason for it, really. Um, what union leaders, what union officials have said to me in the United States and all over the world, like top union officials, like at national union level, have said to me many times is, I don't believe, I've literally had tons of people say to me, I don't believe, said just this way, I don't believe that the room is quiet or that you can control the workers when you open up the room. To which I always say, my aim is not to control workers, it's to enable them, one. And two, um, the room is deadly silent every single time. Every time. Because workers are not stupid. And they actually, when you outline the principles of what it means to be in the negotiations room and that it's a legal, it's a legal space. Like when the employer is in the room, that's the point. You're in a space that can go to arbitration. So every word said in the formal sessions of negotiations can later go to a legal process about intent of the article of the contract and a lot of stuff. So again, just like saying you want to win staffing standards and a pension, here's what you're going to have to do, right? It's the same thing about coming into the negotiations room. So we have three simple principles and workers have to sign them. There's usually a coworker from the committee at the doors and they have to sign them. And they're very simple, three rules. Um, one, you will not speak in the room unless it's planned. Two, uh, only the chief negotiator will speak unless it's planned. Uh, oh, sorry, I said that wrong. That, those are the same ones. Then pass notes anytime as needed, anytime to the negotiator. Wait, I'm doing three rolls of the room wrong. Okay, so only chief negotiator speaks and you will be quiet unless it's planned. And there's a lot of it that's planned and the boss has no idea. Like when workers just start talking and they think it's random. Anyway, you know, there's a lot of stuff we do to prepare for these sessions. Um, pass notes to the chief negotiator absolutely any time and demand a caucus. The hell is the third one, Foster? Oh, God. Anyway, poker face. Jesus, thank you. Poker face um, that you never let the employer know, right? So that's it. 
And the way it happens is that workers have workers entering the room. We print them out and hand palm cards. This is really, really important. Really important. As, as, as ludicrous as a union position holder saying, I bet the room goes crazy when you do that. It's, it's just, it's crazy how simple it is to have three, these three little rules on hand palm cards and say to each worker coming into the room, here's the three rules of the room. By signing in on the sign-in sheet, you, you, you agree to abide by them. That's it. And I'm not kidding to a negotiation. I've never in my entire life ever had a worker ever speak out when the boss was in the room. And because that is a legal space. It's also the place, the only place in America, in the United States under law, where a worker is a legal equal to their employer. Why would we deny them that chance to sit in a room where they are legal equals to their boss? So how many? Hardly any. Um, And the steps to doing it are all in the book. Um, All of them. Thank you. Thank you. This has been wonderful. Hi, my name is Megan. Um, I work with the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee or EWOC, as we call it. Um, And I just have a question, I guess, kind of technical. Like, how do you get workers to 90%? Like, what are some of the tactics that you use uh, to build to that kind of supermajority? Thank you. I can't in in good measure. I mean, I was outlining, you start by identifying who are the natural leaders. Um, You scale them up to be the leaders of the people's army. Um, And it doesn't take a lot to do because they're already natural leaders. Um, and then you set out to do structure tests um, over and over and over. And you're teaching the workers the fundamentals on their wall charts, unit by unit, shift by shift, shop by shop. Are you at the place where you can win the demands you're making? Are you at the place power wise where you can win the demands you're making so that their demands are in relationship to the work they themselves have to do? That's the point of doing big wall charting. Um, and then there's the whole part about bringing the community in, but they're in all the books, so you're going to have to look at them. Well, um, I think we're at time. Uh, we'll hear from you again after the next panel at the end of it. But if I can just say um, that ever since I read your first book a decade ago, Raising Expectations and Raising Hell, there's a lot of you know, hardcore tactical stuff learning about the best ways to win stuff uh, in, in the labor movement, all of which is extremely important. But uh, for me, the thing that I have always taken the most from your work is a kind of uh, ineffable thing, which is a sense, not just like an intellectual sense, you understand, oh, the labor movement's important. This is how we win stuff to change the world. You know, we, we got to rebuild unions. It's the only way. But it's like a, a bone deep, like commitment to love of excitement for the labor movement uh, that that is like contagious in reading your book and uh, hearing you speak about it. Uh, and not just that the labor movement's cool, the labor movement's great, but that actually we can win. It's a bleak world out there. There's a lot that we're up against. Uh, corporate power is crushing. Uh, we live in these, these, these little mini authoritarian dictatorships at, at work and in many other aspects of our lives. But uh, Jane McAlevey is someone who will not take uh, who, who will not take defeat laying down, and in fact, it believes that we can defeat these motherfuckers who are up against. And that is uh, an incredible thing that you have given us through your books and through your work and through your organizing. Um, and uh, it's the it's the most basic thing we need in order to actually get together and 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 fight them. So uh, thank you to you, Jane, for uh, a, a life's work 
doing all of this. It's uh, it's going to you know your every, every book is uh, is worth reading for for the tactical stuff, but also for that sense of uh, that we actually can win and we're actually going to do it. So thank you, Jane McAlevey. Jane McAlevey is an organizer, author, and scholar. She's a senior policy fellow at the University of California at Berkeley's Labor Center, part of the Institute for Labor and Employment Relations, and the author of Raising Expectations and Raising Hell, No Shortcuts, A Collective Bargain, and most recently, with Abby Lawler, Rules to Win By. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, Things are only settled by the continuous struggle between capital and labor, the capitalist constantly tending to reduce wages to their physical minimum and to extend the working day to its physical maximum, while the working man constantly presses in the opposite direction. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. We're recorded at WBRU in Providence, except for this week, we were recorded at the People's Forum in New York City. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theoria Frankos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archive at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, also please rate and review the pod. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, but what really and truly does that is you telling other people to check out this pod. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge.